Welcome to our podcast. We are the Massachusetts Health Data Consortium. We are dedicated to improving the quality and availability of health data for patient care, payment, quality measurement, and public policy. In our podcast, we will talk with innovators in health data to make sense of where and how their contributions fit. Hello, I'm Denny Brennan, and I'm the Executive Director of the Massachusetts Health Data Consortium. Imagine for a moment that today you are an epidemiologist who needs to research how your state's health system has managed the treatment of patients who have been diagnosed with COVID-19. Your goal is to produce real-time, aggregated statistical analyses of total cases, morbidity and mortality, length of stay, disease severity, discharge status, etc. Um, by any number of factors, including geography and demographics, such as race, ethnicity, gender, etc. Unless you are operating under a state law that requires doctors, clinics, and hospitals to share those data with you, your research project is unfeasible. Patient data are private and cannot be shared for this purpose unless every organization involved clears technical, legal, and security hurdles. Anonymizing health data is complex and a technological burden for most healthcare providers. Any healthcare attorney worth his or her salt would advise their client not to participate given the regulatory and reputational risks that a potential data breach would create. Security and privacy officers would cite the numerous ways this use of data violates fundamental privacy and security policies, exposes the data to unintended uses, and risks exposing a person or person's protected health information. What if instead you could conduct these analyses and computations on encrypted data that never leave their source system and are never decrypted? With no centralized database and no decryption, even during computation, sensitive data would never be exposed to you or your external or internal partners. I'm joined today by Andre Lepitz, the Chief Science Officer and co-founder of Nth Party, who will share with us how this multi-party computation, or MPC, actually works. Andre Lepetz, thank you for joining us today. Tell us about Nth Party. What motivated you to create the company? I think I understand the meaning of the company name, but tell me more. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so in 2014, uh, we at Boston University at the time uh, set out to help the city of Boston and the Boston Women's Workforce Council uh, with a wage data benchmarking effort um, using a, a new type of uh, cyber security or cryptography technology. Uh, we didn't know whether it would be successful at the time, uh, but it became evident that if we delivered this technology in the right way, um, it was ready to help organizations realize new opportunities that may not have been possible due to regulatory constraints, privacy concerns, or liability concerns. Um, one of the features of this new technology is the ability for organizations to offer their data storage and computation resources without requiring that users of their infrastructure disclose their data and, and thus put it at risk, um, but also without requiring that the organization offering those resources take on any of the liability of storing and processing that sensitive data. 
Um, additionally, and somewhat counterintuitively, the technology also allows additional parties to get involved who don't have to be trusted. And their involvement can actually make the computation and the processing of the data or even its storage even more secure. So the name of our company really comes from that. It's the fact that if you add an additional nth party to an, a computation that uses this technology, it may actually make the computation even more secure without requiring that additional party to be trusted. Thank you. Um, in order to understand what, what you call multi-party computation or MPC, uh, we need to understand something first, and I think our audience would benefit from understanding something about the web services API economy that drives you know, many health, many industries, but where healthcare is just beginning. Uh, tell us about this data economy from your perspective and how it operates. Sure, so there's kind of two parts to this. One is the web API economy that's evolved uh, over the last, say, decade and a half. Um, in the early web 2.0 days, in the mid 2000s, there was a vision for an API-based future. Um, in which APIs were numerous and uh, highly functional and available from every service provider. And uh, uh, over time, organizations scaled this back because they realized that the high costs of maintenance, as well as the security concerns of exposing these extremely um, uh, rich APIs is something that um, didn't really make sense. At this point, the API economy has kind of reached a steady state. Uh, there are mature and well understood and sometimes limited API standards uh, being published and maintained by most large uh, service providers. Um, and the other side of this story is that over the last 10 to 15 years, organizations have also found themselves uh, becoming massive repositories of data. Uh, they've been extracting value from this data for uh, a good amount of time now, uh, but often not in a transparent way. Um, APIs are a good way uh, for third parties to interact with the data that organizations have. So, you know, for example, if you have Twitter or Facebook, you can interact via the Twitter or Facebook API with the massive amount of data that's in, that's in their possession. Um, another space where this is also happening is the public sector, more so in the last uh, five to 10 years, uh, where many municipalities, states, and federal agencies, they've established data portals with accompanying web APIs uh, over which uh, users can uh, programmatically extract and analyze the data that, uh, that they make available. Building services on APIs means that organizations and businesses can interoperate more easily, but it also becomes more challenging to build services on these APIs in a regulated environment in a safe way. So within this context, MPC technology can both leverage that API ecosystem so that they can um, offer APIs in ways that are more secure, uh, but also it can, via those API capabilities, um, enhance what's possible to do via APIs in a secure and privacy-preserving way. Thank you. There's an API economy emerging in healthcare and many use cases for the application of APIs. The federal government has recently completed two final rules that require that healthcare organizations, uh, providers of healthcare services, hospitals, doctors, uh, insurance companies, and the consumer have access to their health information, the consumer's health information in a way that makes it easier for the consumer to make good choices. Um, but what are the challenges that uh, we have in, in this emerging API economy is, is dealing with the privacy and the security of the data that, 
that is a part of it. Um, before we get to a use case, I'm really interested in understanding from your perspective what multi-party computation or MPC is in the broadest sense. Could you elaborate? Sure. Um, so a broad way to describe MPC is to say that it's a family of techniques that make it possible to analyze and perform computations over encrypted data without decrypting it. And usually the reason it's called multi-party computation is that this capability is enabled by the cooperation between two or more parties who do not need to necessarily trust each other. Another way you can understand multi-party computation is by considering what it can replace. So with multi-party computation, it would be possible to perform computations that would normally require a trusted third party without actually um, recruiting such a third party for that purpose. Okay, now for um, specifics. Uh, there are applications in healthcare where MPC could apply. And as you and I have discussed before, one application could be, for example, uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, collects hospital data. Uh, they collect discharges, emergency visits, observation stays from the 60 plus hospitals in Massachusetts, the 60 plus acute care facilities. Uh, these data are then shared with multiple parties who must sign data use agreements and consent to a number of restrictions on their use, which make it not only onerous from a legal perspective for organizations to access the data, but it puts the state in a difficult position with respect to sharing data that could be under the most extreme circumstances, re-identified and possibly uh, enable someone to identify an individual despite all of the efforts taken. At a high level, how would MPC reduce the privacy risk in inherent, inherent in sharing these kinds of data? So there's a number of ways in which MPC can be used within different parts of the infrastructure and workflows um, that would be involved in this kind of um, scenario. And the benefits that I'm going to describe would uh, sort of fit into some of these. Um, and you could actually pick and choose some of these benefits depending on where you use MPC. Um, so one of the benefits that MPC can provide in this kind of scenario is it can allow the data contributors to have more control and insight into what queries are run over their data. Particularly if the way that this infrastructure is set up is that anyone who wants to make use of that data would actually engage in a multi-party computation effort uh, with the data contributors. And as a result, uh, the data contributors would then have to agree uh, to whatever query is being run by the, the party that's doing the querying. Another uh, benefit that um, could exist for the state in this kind of scenario is that they can reduce the liability of storing a massive amount of data. So, one way in which this can happen is if the contributors always contribute their data to these queries and computations on a sort of as needed basis. Um, another way is that the state can actually store this data in something called a secret shared uh, way so that they don't actually, the state doesn't have access to this data uh, unless the party that contributed is actively consenting to that data being used for a specific purpose. Another thing that using this kind of infrastructure will impose on uh, all the workflows and processes is a type of discipline where the data formats uh, on all sides have to be agreed upon in advance. So something that happens a lot today uh, in these kinds of data use agreements is data will 
uh, be delivered to the other side in some unstructured way or, or perhaps uh, partially structured way. Um, and then it'll be, the onus will be on the recipients of that data to make sense of it and organize it. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, this is sometimes necessary, but at the same time, that does create security risks because at that point, the contributors of the data may not even be sure what it is that they're delivering. And of course, the recipients of the data uh, may engage in exploratory analyses that go beyond what the data contributors intended or anticipated. Another possible uh, benefit is that with the use of this technology, you can prevent after the fact reuse uh, of data for other purposes. Um, so again, similar to uh, the workflow that I described earlier, as long as the data contributors are actively consenting to specific queries and analyses, um, and that data uh, after that analysis is not actually available for other purposes, this kind of uh, activity uh, can be prevented. And, you know, as we get into more and more detail, another technical benefit of using multi-party computation for um, traditional workflows that uh, perform, for example, uh, aggregate data analysis, is that it may be possible to make that analysis more precise. Uh, so in a traditional uh, workflow, it may be that data contributors de-identify or anonymize their data before they send it over to a recipient and then the recipient does some sort of analysis. But of course, the recipient no longer has access to the row level information in those data sets. If that workflow is instead implemented using multi-party computation, it's possible to compute over individual rows in that data without revealing those uh, rows to the recipient. And what that means is that you can take into account things like overlaps, um, you know, correlations between uh, parts of the data that you may not have seen if all you had access to was the anonymized data. But nevertheless, because you're using MPC, the recipients of the analysis will only receive the aggregate results that the analysis is intended to reveal. Thank you. Um, it strikes me, Andre, that MPC creates shared analytics or shared analysis rather than sharing the data in order for analyses to be performed. And in allowing for or enabling uh, real-time or in-time analyses of data that remain with the recipients. Um, it is possible or likely that an organization like the state of Massachusetts in our example would be able to perform the computations and design the computations that were needed to be done on the data before the data were ever organized, arrayed, and made available from the multiple contributors who were involved. And in so doing, the end product is what is produced as a result of collaboration rather than the movement of data from one place to the other. Is that a fair statement to make? Yeah, that's certainly uh, accurate. So in fact, if you want to use uh, multi-party computation for a particular workflow, uh, one of the prerequisites is that the workflow that you're going to be using has to be defined in advance as an algorithm to which everyone who's going to participate agrees. So in some ways, that's a limitation of multi-party computation because you can't have a manual uh, intervention stage within that uh, workflow. And for workflows where that's required, MPC may not be the right solution. Uh, but it will impose this sort of discipline if you use MPC um, within, a, within a particular scenario. MPC has a number of features and variants, uh, starting with, but not restricted to, 
the use of random values. Could you describe the use of random values and some of the features that a company or are part of MPC? So the security properties of MPC rely on the ability of the data contributors uh, to the computation and sometimes also the, uh, the other parties doing the analysis or enabling the computation uh, to create random but correlated values within the privacy of their own organizations. Um, and an example of this would be, let's say that I had my social security number and what I did within the privacy of my own home is I made two random numbers that add up to my social security number, but I chose them such that any possible pair of numbers that adds up to my social security number was equally likely to be chosen. If I then took those two numbers and I gave them to two different individuals, from the perspective of any one of those individuals, the number in their possession looks like it was chosen at random from a given range. And this is the property on which MPC protocols and algorithms uh, are built. So in my example, uh, I split my social security number between two parties. So first, the first question we might want to ask is, um, how would the two parties be able to reconstruct uh, this private information that I shared with them? So in this case, if they simply brought the numbers that I gave them together, they would be able to add them up and recover my social security number. Um, and it may be that the result of a computation uh, you know, requires them to do so if, if the result is my social security number. Um, so the way that MPC works in general is that these two parties may be able to do additional ca calculations on these numbers uh, that, that are in their possession, these random pieces, in some way that produces some other result. So that's sort of one aspect of how this uh, secret sharing technique in MPC works. Another aspect of this secret sharing technique is that the more parties uh, are involved, so for example, if I instead split my social security number into 10 different numbers and hand it out to 10 different organizations, then it would be necessary for all 10 of those organizations to simultaneously put all these numbers back together in order to recover my social security number. If even one out of these 10 organizations decides not to do so, then the other nine organizations just have random numbers. And however they choose to combine those numbers together, it's still going to look like a random number to those nine organizations. So that's something that makes it possible to enhance the security of an MPC protocol by adding additional parties in this way. And finally, if you think about that property, you can also see how that property allows any of the parties involved to revoke access to data. So if Again, we're in this scenario where there are 10 different organizations that all have pieces of my social security number. If even one of these parties chooses to delete the individual piece of information, the individual piece of my social security number, then they've effectively revoked everyone else's access to that information because no one else can now reconstruct uh, my social security number. So this actually provides uh, the ability to revoke or not prove not guarantee, but certainly make it increasingly less likely um, that data will be reused simply because the more organizations are involved, the less likely it is that they would all choose um, not to behave in a way that uh, is in accordance with uh, agreements that were specified ahead of time. Thank you. Exchanging information that appears random to recipients is central to multi-party computation. A number of cryptographic and encryption methods employ randomization to some extent. How is it different in MPC? Some of the techniques to which MPC uh, is frequently compared include differential privacy, de-identification, um, anonymization. 
The other techniques sometimes do use random numbers in order to achieve the properties that, uh, that they possess. One way to distinguish MPC from these other techniques is that you can think about the other techniques as operating on data in the clear, and you can certainly implement those techniques on uh, data that's available and that you have access to. Um, so you would run the algorithm and you would add the noise or you would de-identify it, um, and then you might deliver it somewhere. But in order to do that, in order to conduct that process, you would still have access to the raw data from which uh, you know, the, the results are derived. What MPC allows you to do is MPC allows you to perform that process, whatever process you want to perform on the data without actually seeing the data yourself. So if you think about it, the techniques are actually complementary to each other. What you can do is you can use MPC to implement a de-identification process, or you can use it to implement a process that adds noise to the data uh, or performs a differentially private computation. And what you're going to achieve is you're going to achieve both uh, the property that you're not going to be able to see the data that's coming in as an input. And you may also achieve the properties of uh, the other techniques. So for example, in the case of differential privacy, what that would ensure is that individuals within the input data cannot be identified from the output. Um, if you use de-identification or anonymization, it would ensure that the output does not contain uh, information that is sufficiently granular to identify the input data. Uh, so in a sense, these, these techniques make it possible together with MPC to achieve both of these results, um, even though the, the two techniques are orthogonal. While parties that are engaged uh, collectively and individually in multi-party computation are assumed to be acting in good faith, there are adversarial behaviors that can break trust-based exchanges of encrypted data. Talk about these adversarial behaviors and how multi-party computation prevents or reduces the risks they present. Yeah, so uh, in the multi-party computation community and more broadly in the cryptography community, um, there are two, at least two categories of adversarial behavior and they're called semi-honest behavior and uh, malicious behavior. So when uh, participants in an MPC protocol are being semi-honest, what that means is that um, they conduct all the steps of the protocol and all the obligations they have within that protocol correctly but they listen as carefully as possible and record as much as possible, and they try to learn as much as possible about what's happening uh, within, the, within the computation. Malicious actors who are adversarial, uh, what they're actually doing is potentially they're uh, taking incorrect actions within the protocol. They may be submitting garbage data. They may be not submitting data when they should be. Uh, they may be communicating inappropriately. And different MPC protocols protect against different types of adversarial um, behavior within these two categories. So what uh, we have found in uh, our experience uh, is that in many cases in, in real world scenarios where you deploy MPC, it, it's the case that uh, incentives are aligned in such a way that it may be sufficient to use an MPC technique that only protects against semi-honest adversarial behavior versus malicious adversarial behavior. And in some cases, for example, uh, this may be because uh, parties are actually using MPC to protect themselves. So uh, an organization may be contributing its computational resources, but it does not want to expose itself to the liability uh, of possessing sensitive data at any point in the process. If that's the reason that they're using MPC, 
they would try to adhere to the protocol as closely as possible because any uh, deviation from the protocol may result in them being in possession uh, of data that they should not have. So, so that's one way in which uh, aligned incentives may actually inform the decision of what kind of protocol to use. Another example that we've seen is organizations may actually be contractually obligated uh, to conduct the protocol in the appropriate way. Um, so there's a lot of real world aspects uh, to MPC deployments that uh, can inform which of these techniques you want to use and therefore which of these um, adversarial behaviors you want to mitigate against. One of the challenges with transformations of data, uh, whether it's for multi-party computation or for other types of analyses by multiple parties, is it's, it's especially difficult to validate. Um, if you don't have access to the raw data, it's it's especially difficult to reconstruct how it was calculated and how uh, a, an output might differ from what you expected given the kinds of calculations. How do you deal with, with validation uh, as a method of, of testing the reliability of computation when you have the level of masking or invisibility or randomization that you have with MPC? How do you, how do you work around that? So this is actually a, it is a drawback of, of using MPC for a workflow. Um, you don't, you do not have access to the raw data that, um, uh, depending on which party you are, to the raw data that went into the computation. Uh, you can try to mitigate this in some ways. So you could, uh, you know, obligate the data contributors to um, submit themselves as long as it's some fraction of the data that's uh, being um, submitted to spot checking. You could, if the validation process itself can somehow be automated, it can be implemented as an algorithm, then you can make that part of the MPC computation. One of the um, validation techniques we actually had to implement uh, within the benchmarking efforts that we did with nonprofits was outlier detection. Um, and this is something that you can do under an MPC computation. And what that means, for example, is that if the input data is an outlier, you can either flag the result of the entire computation and say that there's something unusual happening, or you can filter it out if you believe that that's something that's valid to do uh, within that particular workflow. Um, so that's another option. Uh, but in general, if it is necessary to validate a computation uh, or an analysis uh, in a way that requires access to the raw data, it may be that multi-party computation is not the right solution. Okay. The general data protection regulation or the GDPR in the European Union and uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act or the CCPA as it's referred to are major data protection and privacy regulations that are going to have imp implications that spread across the, the health data ecosystem to say the least. How does MPC enable organizations to comply with these and in all likelihood future and more restrictive consumer data protection regulations? So the data that is uh, secret shared in the way that uh, we described earlier, um, it actually qualifies in its secret shared form when it's, you know, when it is seen as these random numbers by the, the participating parties within the protocol. It qualifies as both de-identified and anonymized data. Uh, essentially, you can't derive any information from these random numbers and therefore 
it's, uh, it, it, it sort of trivially almost qualifies. Um, and as a result, it may be that the regulation doesn't apply to data as long as it's in that form. So if you're comparing this to a traditional workflow where you may need a trusted third party to possess the original data in order to perform a computation, now you're in a situation where that third party may only possess these random numbers, these secret shares, and therefore regulations may not even apply. Furthermore, if the goal of computation is to deliver some kind of anonymized uh, analysis to, some, to a recipient, what MPC allows you to do is allows you to get to that point by conducting those anonymization steps at a later stage in the process. And it allows the process itself to be conducted by parties who don't have access to any of the uh, raw data. So what that means is that workflows that may not have been possible before because the anonymization step was uh, necessarily much earlier in the process or because the parties involved could not conduct those processes in a way that complies with uh, regulations can now uh, be conducted using MPC. Well, Andre Lepetz, I want to thank you for your contributions and your insights today. I want to thank Nth Party. Um, this is a fascinating technology with many applications in healthcare, and I look forward to our talking further and to your continued success. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. For more information on the Massachusetts Health Data Consortium and other podcasts, please go to our website, mahealthdata.org, where you can find more information and upcoming events. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. 